have within me. And it's this. Is one, I think it is very sensitive. I think it is also very complicated. And because it's very sensitive and very complicated, I think it's very controversial. So my goal here today is to uh, not say anything that would be uh, offensive or, or hurtful to anyone, because I don't think you can get a gathering together of this many people in this room and that many people at home and not have some, if not many, having been affected deeply by suicide. So my goal here today is to first and foremost be biblical, but I also want to be extremely loving and extremely gracious to those individuals in particular. And one more thing, by way of introduction, as I was studying, I kept seeing a, a phone number that was shared uh, time and time again in various places, and it was the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And I thought, well, people are coming in here or watching at home, and, and they, uh, I don't know where they're at emotionally, mentally, um, spiritually, and so I thought I'd make the number available to you. You can see it on the screen. It's 1-800-273-TALK. As we begin, let me share with you some statistics. I got these from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and the National Institute of Mental Health. Over the last number of years, suicide rates have been on the rise, and that is putting it mildly. In, in a single year, in our country alone, there's more than 40,000 deaths by suicide, with an estimated 1 million more attempts. It's the 10th leading cause of all deaths in the U.S. And there's twice as many deaths via suicide than there are deaths by homicide. And so this has and continues to be the trend. And as troubling as those numbers are, but that's, that's all they are, is they're numbers. They're, they're just statistics. The, the reality is, for every one of those numbers, there is a person made in the image of God who's suffering. It, they are fearfully and wonderfully made. And so I want to put a little flesh on those numbers. See, often people, we don't, we don't sit up and take notice as a society that there's an issue until it happens to a celebrity. And then it seems like everybody's talking about it. And that was the case back in 2014 with the very famous actor slash comedian Robin Williams took his own life. His personal assistant came into his bedroom one morning because he was delayed in coming out, just went in to check on him found him with his wrist cut, hanging by a belt in his closet. And then a year prior, the, the, the Christian community felt the weight of suicide when the very famous uh, author slash pastor Rick Warren, author of Purpose Driven Life, I'm sure you've heard of the book, his son Matt turned a gun on himself. And later that year, 2013, our church, Living Water Community Church, 
was greatly affected when another Matt, Matt Bowman, took his life. He's the son of a member here at Living Water, goes by the name of Julie Rischel. Uh, I've known Julie and Terry Rischel for many years. Uh, I have great love and respect for them, but that has only grown in the last few weeks as Julie sat down with me to just give us a, a little glimpse into what it's like to be affected by suicide. So we have that video. Let's go ahead and run that now, please. Hello, everyone. I'm here with uh, Living Water longtime faithful, Julie Rischel. Uh, she's been with us uh, since the very beginning. Thank you for sharing uh, some of your time with us today, Julie. She has confessed that she's a little bit nervous, but don't be. You're amongst friends. But back in September of 2013, Julie's son, Matt, uh, he tragically took his life. And so, Julie, if you would, please uh, take a few minutes and, and share with us uh, some of your thoughts on this very difficult subject of suicide. I want to say that I am not an expert in suicide. I am just a mom who lost her son to this horrific, to a horrific death. When the police first came to tell me that my son was dead, I, I remember my first reaction was overwhelming grief. The next two weeks were, are like a blur. I remember people coming, people going. It was after the funeral when I was left to my own devices when I, it really hit me extremely hard that Matt was dead and I would never see him again. And so as the world went back to their normal, which was work, school, whatever, I was left home alone. And the first thing I started thinking about was how could God do this to me? I, I was a faithful Christian. I had been praying for Matt for years. Uh, Matthew had been doing heroin for about 10 years. He was a definite addict. He had tried rehab several times. It just, he never could stay clean. So I had been praying for God just to keep Matt safe till the day came when he would turn back to Christ and he would fulfill his, his life in the normal way as we all do, what I, what I consider normal. And I felt God had betrayed me. He, he took Matt, he didn't answer my prayers, especially not the way I wanted him to. And I was angry and I remember crying, I remember hollering. There was, the days were long, and there were sleepless nights, and that's, that consumed me, that anger. After a while, I got tired of being angry. It, it, anger is exhausting. And I finally started just communicating with God on a normal level and asking him. I, I said, okay, you made a decision. You, you let my son take his life. Now what? What is my next step? What is my new normal going to look like? And he started talking to me, and I, not voice, but that little thing inside tells you that 
God wants you to do something. And I said, well, whatever it is you want me to do, you need to really knock me over the head and let me know because I have no clue where I go from here. I don't know what my new normal is going to look like. So God started, he said, well, he told me that he would let me know about some of the good that has come out of Matt's death. And that seems like it doesn't make sense that good can come out of death. But people that were involved with Matt and knew Matt, their lives were changed when he died. And one of the first things that God brought to mind was that a very, very close family member came to me after Matt died and said, you know, Joel, I've considered suicide, I've attempted it, and I will never attempt it again. I now know what it looks like for the people left behind. And I remembered that, I, I kept thinking about that, and I'm like, okay, God, how else has this changed the world or helped the world in any way? And my daughter ended up, there were two of her students who had close family members take their lives. And she was able to mentor them and counsel them because she knew what it was like to lose a family member. And as the years have gone by, I, more and more things have happened. Uh, Matt's wife was an alcoholic. And after Matt died, she checked herself into a rehab facility and she got sober. She worked the program. She got a counseling degree in drug and alcohol. And she ended up going to college and graduating with her bachelor's. And that would have never happened had Matt been alive, never. And I even talked to God about that. After I said, so you're telling me that you took my son so his wife could get on with her life. And yes, that's what happened, he did. So I started looking within myself to see what was it about Matt's death that I was supposed to get out of this. I know it's not all about me. It's, it's his effect on the whole world and everybody around him, but I'm his mom. And God showed me during that terrible time, the first six months or so after his death, that. I was a isolationist. I, I was my own little island. I didn't reach out to people. I had some, some friends, and they would call occasionally, but I never, ever called them and reached out and told them I needed help or I needed anything. And God showed me this clearly that I was missing out on a lot of things. So I remember we came to church one Saturday night, I believe it was the end of March, beginning of April in 2014, and I saw where the women's group was doing a Bible study on Jonah. <laughs> I kind of found it ironic. Um, Jonah ran from what God wanted him to do, and I felt like for a lot of my life I have been running from what God wanted me to do. So I signed up for the class on the spot. I went to it. It was extremely difficult. I spent a lot of the class time just crying. But I met some really, really, really great women in that group. And I was encouraged by their friendships 
And I continued to go to the women's group, and I continued to let God use me as he sees fit. I have been able to reach out to people who have lost a loved one to suicide. And I, I don't know what all God has done through Matt's death, but I do know that lives have been changed. I know my family and I have been changed. And God, God has showed me and been with me. You know, I used to think I was alone, and I realized that we are never alone. God is with us 100%. And at times, I just picture myself sitting, when I'm really down and out, I picture myself sitting in his lap, and he's just holding me and comforting me. And I just think that while we, we, we're devastated with something that has happened in our life, it, there has to be a bigger picture. And I will, to the day I die, I will continue to look for the bigger picture in what Matt's suicide has done. I can tell you that that was very difficult for Julie to do. And I, I found it helpful personally. I, I hope you did as well. Uh, but I thought she did a great job sharing that. That was one take, no edits. Very well done, Julie. Very well. Thank you. Well, as, in regard to this very sensitive subject of suicide, I want to go to the scriptures. I want to go to the Holy Bible. I want to look at the historical accounts of the people in the Bible that took their own lives. And we're going to do a front-to-back, very brief look at each of these individuals. I have a slide here where we have all the names listed, starting at first with Abimelech. And I, I gave you the scripture citation, uh, should you want to look there, perhaps later, uh, to get the backstory. I'm just giving you a cursory glance here. Uh, Abimelech, uh, son of Gideon, ruled Israel for like three years, and uh, he was um, in the midst of attacking a city, and all the people in the city fled into a tower, and they go up to the roof of the tower, and a certain woman drops a millstone on top of Abimelech, crushing his skull. But before he died, he says, I don't want to be considered as the guy who got taken out by a woman. So he says to his armor bearer, run me through with your sword, which he promptly does kind of an assisted suicide. Uh, second one on the list, King Saul, first king of Israel. Uh, he, you know, he battling with the Philistines, knows the battle's over, uh, things are not going to go well, he fears the worst, he's going to be tortured by them. And so he makes the same request to his armor bearer, but his armor bearer refuses. And so Saul takes matters into his own hands and he falls upon his own sword. And then the Armor bearer promptly follows suit. So that's the first three. And then you have Ahithophel. Ahithophel, he's kind of a counselor of sorts for King David and King David's son, Absalom. And, and I don't think Ahithophel uh, took uh, criticism very well because uh, the, the passage there you'll see if you look it up in 2 Samuel, it says, you know, his counsel was not received. Therefore, he went home, put his house in order, 
and hanged himself. King Zimri, probably the most obscure out of all of them, uh, he was a king for only seven days. You've heard of king for a day? Well, Zimri was king for a week. And he gets supplanted by uh, a guy named Omri, who comes after uh, uh, Zimri in, 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 in the city where, where Zimri was taking refuge. Zimri burns the place down uh, with himself in it, so he dies by fire. And then lastly, probably the most popular, Judas Iscariot, the only one in the New Testament. Uh, you know the story. Judas, one of the 12, uh, betrays the Son of Man with a kiss and, and, and betrays him for a mere 30 pieces of silver. Afterwards, has some measure of remorse or regret, uh, falling short of biblical repentance, and he, he throws the coins into the temple and goes out and hangs himself. And the question that always comes up when you talk about this subject is this, what happened to them? What happened to them? Where did they go after they ended their earthly life? Are they in heaven or are they in hell? And I wanna put a pause on that question for right now. We will get back to it. But I wanna ask a different question. I think there's a preliminary question that must be asked first. And that question is this, is what these men did a sin? Is it a sin to kill yourself? Now, I want you to be careful as you answer that question inside your head, because I've asked a number of people that question over the last couple of weeks, and they give me their answer, but as they begin to tell it to me, I realize they're answering a question that I didn't ask. They're answering the question, is it forgivable? That's not the question that's up for consideration right now. It's, is it a sin? And when we go about getting an answer to that question, I, I don't think we should just pull it from, from thin air. I don't think we should rely upon man's fallible reasoning either. We have to go to a reliable source. We have to go to the source of truth. And for the Christian, that is the Holy Bible. So when it comes to any ethical dilemma whatsoever, the question that we should be asking is, has God spoken? Do we have revelation from him? Not, what are my feelings? What are my emotions telling me? Or relying upon our, our broken cognitive abilities that emanate from a broken brain that functions within a broken world. We need to go to that which is not broken, that which has is, is not been corrupted, and that is the scriptures. So as we dive in, I, I want to uh, just humbly ask that you stay with me, okay? Uh, don't jump to any conclusions. Try not to jump ahead. This is, like I said, it's very complicated. Uh, please allow me to kind of sort through this as we, as we advance through this message so I can tell you, as we open up the Bible, I can tell you this. Here's what we don't have. We don't have an explicit verse, chapter and verse, that says, thou shalt not kill oneself. We don't have that. Now, that doesn't mean that 
we don't have anything or that we cannot arrive at a solid answer. It just means that it's not stated in any sort of unambiguous manner. And so the first observation that I would like to make is that of those six men that I just shared with you, it's noteworthy to say that of each of them, there's nothing recorded in Scripture that is commendable. There's nothing written about the way they ended their life that is praiseworthy. With each of the six, the suicide marks the end of a life that didn't merit anything of record to indicate God's approval. So we have to start there. Next, we'd like to look at the, at the totality of Scripture, the breadth of Scripture. What does it have to say about life? What does it have to say about the sanctity of life? Specifically, the sanctity of human life, because that's the issue that's on the table. Suicide terminates a life. And we do have this chapter and verse. Exodus 20, verse 13 says this, you shall not murder. Murder is the unjust taking of a human life. And so what makes murder so wrong? It's, it's not that it just takes any life, it takes a certain type of life. It takes the life of an image bearer of God. And that's why the term murder is exclusive for human beings. If, if you're a hunter and you go out and you hunt and you roll up on an unsuspecting deer just minding his own business and you shoot and kill that deer, no one's going to say that you murdered the deer. That, that would be a, a misapplication of that term. However, if you roll up on an unsuspecting person and you shoot and kill them outside of the context of a just war or, or self-defense, things like that, if you have no justifiable reason for it, then you have broken the sixth commandment and you have committed murder. And so just like it would be wrong for me to end your life, it is equally wrong for me to end my own life. Because like you, I'm made in the image of God. In addition to that, God is the giver of life. He's the one who gives it, and it is his prerogative as to when to take it away. The book of Job I found very helpful in seeking to answer this question. Job, as you know, death surrounds him. He experiences a ton of death. And right in the first chapter, we read these words. Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Why? Because all lives belong to God. He does with them what he wants. You know, we're not a fan of this kind of language, but God owns us. By virtue of being our creator, he has certain ownership rights over us. And among them is how and when your life will end. 
Job goes on. He tells us just exactly who the owner of all life is. He elaborates from, from beasts to birds to bushes to the breath of all mankind. Who owns it all? It is the Lord. Those lives are in his hand. Job 12, we read, But ask the beasts, and they will teach you. The birds of the heavens, and they will tell you. Or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you. And the fish of the sea will declare to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. And you compare that with Psalm 31. The psalmist says, But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, You are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Let's go back to Job once more. A lot of scripture today. You don't want to hear from me on this issue. You want to hear from the Lord. Job 14.5, Job says this of mankind. Since his days, he's, he's speaking of man there. Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, that is the Lord, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Our days are determined. There's a fixed number. There is. You don't know the number. I don't know the number. It's known only to God. But it is fixed. And if you and I decide to end our earthly life, that snatches a life from the hand of God. It's a usurping of his divine prerogative. And more than that, if you claim to be a Christian, we go to the New Testament and we read that you, dear Christian, were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6 says this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. To the Christian, God says, You're mine. You're mine. You're twice mine. I made you and I bought you with something very, very precious the blood of my own son. And here's my last line of reasoning from the scriptures. And I'm well aware that this is not popular. Suicide overlooks the value of human suffering. The Bible has a lot of challenging things to say about human suffering. It does. It says things like, rejoice in your sufferings because they produce within, within us things like endurance and, and character and hope. That's Romans chapter 5. When we share in the sufferings of Christ, we are becoming more and more like him in his death. That's Philippians 3. Lastly, 1 Peter 4, I'd like to read to you from the Amplified Bible. It reads like this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which is taking place to test you. That is, to test the quality of your faith, as though something strange or unusual were happening to you. But insofar as you are sharing Christ's sufferings, keep on rejoicing. 
so that when his glory, filled with radiance and splendor, is revealed, you may rejoice with great joy. Peter's conclusion, we drop down to verse 19. Therefore, those who are ill-treated and suffer in accordance with the will of God must continue to do right and commit their souls for safekeeping to the faithful creator. See, in this present life, if you and I experience comfort and ease, and I would like to think you would agree with me that we do to some degree, your life may be very hard, but it could be harder. <laughs> you know, we, we do. I, I receive, I have, I, I, my, a lot of my life is surrounded with comfort and ease, and that is the grace of God. That is, that is an extension of his kindness because it's not promised to me, nor should I expect it. On the contrary, what did the Lord Jesus say? He says, in this life, you will have trouble. But he doesn't stop there. He says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And when we are tempted to throw in the towel and end our lives, God says that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, I recognize how heavy this is. I do. But it's about to get a lot heavier. At this point, I'd like to direct your attention to the title of this sermon series. We gave it the title, Scripture Speaks to Society. And I'm here to tell you that, that what I just laid out, not everybody in society is going to agree with it. Perhaps there's people in this room that don't agree with what I just laid out, or at home. I want to quote here a man who I think uh, typifies the, the, the opposing viewpoint. Let me introduce you to Kevin Caruso. He, he wrote a piece at, of all places, suicide.com, and I read it, and I'd like to share it with you because he states his position quite emphatically. Mr. Caruso says this, First off, suicide is not a sin. All caps. One more time, suicide is not a sin. People who die by suicide are in intense, overwhelming pain, and they want that pain to stop. Let me ask you this. Is it a sin to have pain that is so overwhelming that you cannot function? Well, is it? When someone dies by suicide, to tell the suicide survivors that their loved one has sinned is not only patently wrong, on both factual and moral levels, but it is also cruel. It is ignorance about suicide that caused people to make such unbelievably idiotic, insensitive, and inaccurate statements. I feel the weight of that. I hope you do too. See, according to Mr. Caruso, if I have rightly read interpreted and applied those Bible verses that I just shared with you, I just spend the last 10 minutes spouting off idiotic, insensitive, 
and inaccurate statements. He's coming hard at me. And if you agree with what I've laid out, he's coming hard at you too. So here's what I want to do. I want to I help him make his case. His case is suicide isn't sinful. Okay, I'm going to provide some support for Mr. Caruso's position. In preparation for the sermon, I read a book, or portions of the book, I should say. I didn't read it in its entirety, and, and I certainly don't agree with everything in the book, so this is not an endorsement in any way. But the title of it was Terminal Choices, Euthanasia, Suicide, and the Right to Die by Robert Wenberg. And this book, I will tell you right now, turned my mind into a series of ethical knots. Basically, a, just a, a brain pretzel. When I was done reading, just excerpts from the book. And because I want you to see just how complicated this is, <clears throat> I mentioned earlier that this is complex. And I stand by that. And I'm going to hopefully demonstrate that to you. So I want to do what Mr. Wenberg did in the book, basically. I'm going to present to you a few scenarios and then just simply ask you some questions. We'll start with something relatively easy. Scenario number one. A soldier and his platoon are gathered together and in the midst of them drops a live grenade. One soldier leaps on top of that grenade to take the brunt of the explosion in an attempt to save his fellow soldiers' lives. I don't believe that that is sinful because I wouldn't even consider that a suicide. Some people do. Some people, I just I respectfully disagree with that. And what I find to be helpful in answering the question and kind of sorting through all this is the actual definition for suicide. And there's lots of definitions out there. You got dictionary.com, Merriam-Webster. Well, I went, to, uh, I went to the CDC, and I know this is not a great time to be quoting the CDC because we're a little bit skeptical on the validity of the information that they have. Maybe some of you are. But they nailed the definition of suicide. Let me share it with you. Suicide is death caused by injuring oneself with the intent to die. And I think that last portion is extremely helpful. It is. Because that soldier's intent that day was not to die. He, he wouldn't have killed himself uh, otherwise. The situation made that, that his decision for him. So quite the opposite. His or her intent was not to die, but it was to preserve life. And in so doing, their life would be lost. Therefore, I think it's a category error to consider that, uh, filing that under suicide. I would put it under a different column, a different S word, a word sacrifice. That's what I think is going on there. And, and that's why I didn't include Samson in my list of biblical suicides. Some of you might have been thinking, Mike, you forgot Samson. A lot of people say there's seven. They would add Samson in. 
Uh, again, I just, I just respectfully disagree. I, I just don't see that what he did there with taking out the Philistines, uh, he was not, he, his intent was not for him to die. His intent was to take out the Philistines, but he knew that it, it would mean the end of his life. So I wouldn't even categorize it as such. Scenario number two, similar but different. Staying in the realm of the military, a POW, prisoner of war, gets, gets captured by the enemy. And he knows that they're going to torture him in an attempt to extract vital information from him so that, that they could utilize it against him and, 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 and his crew. And, and this information that, that, that would be given up could mean military defeat. It could mean loss of life. And so this soldier willingly swallows a cyanide capsule, thus killing himself. What do you do with that? Was that a sin, or was he saving lives? Is that suicide? Should he have chosen to endure the suffering? Shouldn't he have said with the psalmist, cry out to the Lord, my times are in your hand, rescue me from the hand of my enemies, and from my persecutors, like I read in Psalm 31. Instead, he took matters into his own hands. Shouldn't he have trusted that God would see him through it? I will leave those questions unanswered. Scenario number three, and these are going to get harder and harder. September 11th, 2001, 90th floor of the World Trade Center. There's a man hanging out the window, waving a towel, hoping to be rescued as the building is becoming engulfed with flames. He's taken in smoke, and the flames and the heat are bearing down on him, and he chooses to jump out the window. Suicide? Maybe he should have held out hope a little longer. Maybe a rescue was forthcoming. Maybe a helicopter was coming in the next 30 seconds that he didn't know. Maybe God would work a miracle. Was that a lack of faith? Should, should he have just hung in there waiting until he burned to death instead of jumping? Would that have been more pleasing to the Lord? Again, I'm just asking some questions, and I will leave those likewise unanswered. Now, some of you, you, you might say, Mike, these are very unique circumstances. Agreed. I agree with you. But here's why these are relevant. Okay, please don't miss this point. Don't miss this. Because the people, uh, there's people out there that would compare the intake of smoke and the scorching flames to what it's like to be affected by deep depression and mental illness. They would make that connection. They, they would argue that people who are afflicted, afflicted by things like depression, mental illness, and chemical imbalances in the brain, those people have no choice but to take their lives, just like those jumpers on 9-11. Are you beginning to see just how complex this is? For the record, the New York City coroner's office ruled on each one of those people who jumped and if I'm not mistaken, I think the number is close to 200. I didn't think it was that many. But they ruled on each of those deaths. 
and they didn't classify them as suicide, but rather homicide. Last scenario. I made up this one myself. Uh, my brain was stimulated as I'm reading these scenarios, and, 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 and I thought of this one on my own. And, and it's not far-fetched. It's not. These things happen. My wife and I, we watch these um, 48 Hours and Dateline Mysteries. I, I struggle a little with them because a lot of them are really dark. And I mean, I'm like, is this what we should be watching? But, you know, I don't watch her shows and she, she'll endure sports sometimes with me. But we've found that we both enjoy these shows. Um, but they're very disturbing. And I think my scenario is probably birthed from me watching those. There's too much information for you about my household and my wife and I's viewing habits, but I'm letting you know where it comes from. Um, but brace yourself, though, because this is, this, is just, this is just one of the sad realities of, our, of the world we live in. There's a young woman. This is hypothetical. I'm just making it up, but it, but it happens. young woman gets abducted by some degenerate pervert. And his, his sole desire is to abuse this woman, both physically and sexually. Day in and day out, he keeps her imprisoned. And this goes on for not days, not weeks, not months, but maybe years, perhaps even decades. And then one day, this man leaves a firearm within within arm's reach of the woman, carelessly, leaves it there. And she sees it, and she grabs for the gun. But instead of turning it on him, she turns it on herself. Why? Because she's filled with such shame, such embarrassment. Every ounce of this woman's dignity has been taken from her by this man. She's disgraced and she feels dirty. And she thinks, yeah, I might be able to take him out and then I get out of here and then I gotta get, tell this story to people. That would be even more painful. And she decides to consciously pull the trigger. To borrow the words from Mr. Caruso, she is in intense, overwhelming pain and she just wants the pain to stop. What do you do with that? What do you do? Remember my statement earlier? I said that suicide overlooks the value of human suffering. And, and I stand by that. I think that's a biblical statement. But take that statement for which I did give biblical support, apply it to this situation. What are we to say here? That she should have rejoiced in her sufferings? That they're producing within her endurance and character? She's looking more and more like Jesus as she endures this man violating her day in and day out? I just want you to feel the weight of this. This is so heavy. What do you make of that situation? Are there allowances? Are there any accommodations made? Are there any exceptions? What is your response? I'll tell you my response. Here's my response. You ready? I don't know. I don't know. I think we have a hard time saying I don't know. 
We always think we ought to have the answer for everything. I lead an evangelism group, and I know one of the things that people say is, oh, I, don't, I can't share my faith. What if somebody asks me a question that I don't know the answer to? I'm like, okay, so here's your answer. You ready? I don't know. You asked a great question. I don't know. Let me get the answer and get back to you. But there's things in this life we just, we throw up our hands. We don't know. But it's at this point where certain words should bubble to the surface for the Bible-believing Christian. Words like compassion, sympathy, empathy, understanding, nuance, and complexity, sensitivity, charity, generosity, and maybe most of all, humility. See, having said that now, I think I do have a response. I have a response to every one of those scenarios and any scenario that you can create inside your mind. I have an answer. You know what my answer is? Will not the just judge of all the earth do that which is right? That's my answer. I entrust all judgment to him, to the omniscient God who sees what's going on inside every single person at every moment of their life. He knows the mind, he knows the heart, he knows the intent. And because he's God, he can balance those, those concepts like justice, mercy, and compassion, and he can hold them in perfect tension. I can't, and neither can you. And it's not even our job. Let God be God. Play your position, right? Get up off the throne. Our butts are too small to fill out that throne. It, be, it belongs to him alone, and we leave all that judgment to him, and we let the just judge of all the earth do what is right. And he will. We can rest in that. Well, Mike, what's he going to do? I don't know. It's up to him. So my answer to the person who takes their own life, where are they? Are they in heaven? Are they in hell? My answer is the same. The just judge of all the earth will do what is right. But I will say this. I will say that suicide is not the unpardonable sin. Some people think that it is. I've had conversations with those people in the last few days. And we've gone back and forth. And we looked it up in the Bible. We looked at Matthew 12. We looked at Mark 3. And I can tell you, if you want to look at those later, suicide is not in view there whatsoever. You've got to crowbar it in because it ain't there. But what is there is every sin, Matthew says, all sins, Mark says, will be forgiven except for the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And suicide is not the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I say that with great confidence. Some people, they, they point to 1 John 1.9. Let me share this with you. They say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the logic behind that is, well, if the person kills themselves, then they don't have the opportunity to confess. And the way they read that verse is they highlight if, if, capital I, capital F, bold, neon sign, if we confess our sins, but you can't do that because you're dead, well, then the rest of the verse doesn't take place. There's no cleansing. There's no forgiveness. That's what they would tell you. 
But I'm here to tell you that is a misapplication of that verse. It's a faulty understanding of salvation. That's not how salvation works. It's not this tit-for-tat system that, you know, you set up a ledger, and on one column you got your sins, and then you got to make sure that you meticulously match up every sin with a corresponding confession and repentance, and you keep doing this all the days of your life, just staying one step ahead of death. That is not how it works. See, if you and I had to confess every one of our sins up until our last breath, I got news for you, no one's going to heaven. Nobody. You know why? Because I'm committing sins that I'm not even aware of. God in his kindness, he's like, Mike, you got a little plate over here, work on those, and he doesn't pile it all on there, I would be overwhelmed. It's his kindness. But as you grow in maturity, he reveals more and more and more. Stuff that we're not even aware of right now. That's, it's just, it's a lack of understanding of something called, you know, soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. We can't be afraid of big words. No soteriology. Learn what that means and, 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 and unpack that. It will help you. Because the truth is, when a wretched sinner comes to Jesus Christ, they will find him to be a perfect Savior. They come in repentance. They come in faith, true repentance, true faith, turning from sin, turning to Christ, and they embrace him. Something amazing happens. It's the doctrine of justification. God says, you're a guilty sinner, but I stamp you on the strength of the blood of my son, innocent. You're not guilty. This is good news. This is the glorious doctrine of justification, what the reformers went to battle over. It is at the heart of what we believe. It's a legal declaration comparable to a guilty criminal who deserves punishment getting pardoned. And that is true for you and me if we are in Christ. He says, not guilty. You're innocent, declared righteous, not based upon anything that we have done. This is an act of God. Apart from us, any good, any bad, nothing. You contribute zip to this. My friends, we need more theology. We do. we got to understand theology, understand things like soteriology, understand things like sanctification, justification, glorification. What's the difference between imputed righteousness and infused righteousness? These things will help you. This stuff is not for the seminary prof with the, you know, the beard and the glasses and smokes a pipe and you know, got the tweed jacket with the elbow patches, drinking craft beer. This is for everybody, you and me. I'm a layman, and I found great comfort and encouragement of the study of God. And that is what theology is, and it will help us. So the question is, for anyone who dies, suicide or not, the question is, are they justified? Are they justified? Because how you die, whether it's by your hand or not, that's not the determining factor of your eternal destination. It's what you do with the Lord Jesus Christ that is the determining factor of your eternal destination. It is about him. And think about it. We have limited knowledge. We do. I, I maintain, I think we, we, we think we know far more than we actually do. 
And I'll raise my hand. I'm I'm the first one to tell you that. I think I got things all figured out. And this goes back to my previous point. We need to just stay in our lane, basically. We don't ultimately know whether or not anyone is justified. We can look and say, they bear some good fruit. I take them on their profession of faith and I hope for the best. I don't ultimately know. We're getting mere glimpses into people's lives. What you have is you have a photo of people's lives. You, you look at somebody who took their own life and you, you focus in on, on that fact and it's like a photograph. Well, the problem with a photograph is you don't see what happened before, any photograph. You don't see what happened before, you don't see what happened after. It's just, it's a freeze frame. That's all you got. But if we want to have confidence that our loved ones have gone on to be with, with Jesus in glory, we don't need a photo, we need a video. We need an expansion. We need to see the totality of their life and not just zero in on one aspect of it. Look at Peter, the apostle Peter. You see him there warming himself by the fire, denying Christ to a servant girl. Some Christian, right? Well, you only got a snapshot. You didn't see him before. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Walking on water. You don't see him after being restored by Christ and being a, a leader and preaching the gospel. You're just, you're just focused in on that. Your, 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 your narrow view, you, the truth was obscured. So what we need to do is not zoom in on something like suicide because we need to take a look at the full picture. I have an illustration for you. Let me throw it up on the screen here, if you would, Stu. If you can see, it's a little small. What is going on on that camera? What do you see there? It looks like one person is attacking another person with a knife. Hmm, that's what's going on, right? Well, let's pull back and see the big picture. You'll find out that there's actually something, the opposite is happening. It's actually the other way around. But we narrowed in, the cameraman just got up so close, Truth was distorted. Sometimes we, we, we have the wrong perspective. It's not that we're looking too closely at it. We just got the wrong angle. Look at this picture here. This is a picture of Prince William. Prince William with a gesture to the press. Now, you might think there's something wrong with that. I don't. There's absolutely nothing wrong with what he's doing there. He's simply telling the press there that his wife just gave birth to their third child. But you thought something else was going on because you had the wrong perspective. And truth was distorted. God knows the truth. He he sees the full picture with the perfect angle with all knowledge. Trust all judgment into his hands. The call here today, my friends, is for humility. And couple that with understanding and compassion. We don't water down the word of God. I don't think I've done that here today. I pray that I haven't. But what does the Bible say? That we, as mankind, we look on the outside. We look at the outside with limited knowledge. What does God do? He looks at the heart with all knowledge. And he knows those who are his. I don't. And neither do you. Let me close with these final verses from Colossians 2. They're just too good not to share. 
Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us some, most, no, all of our trespasses, past, present, and future by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Comes back to the gospel. That's very good news. I hope you agree. Let's pray. Lord God, I I have no problem admitting that I don't know. There's much I don't know. There's I praise you for uh, enlightening me and sharing with me a, a little bit of knowledge. Lord, that's all I have. But you are the sovereign creator of all things. You know every, every molecule of motion, everything that happens in this world, you're aware of it. Not only that, you, you're aware and you care. And so, Lord, we trust all judgment to you. Help us to not think too highly of ourselves, but trust you, because we know how you will judge. You've revealed something of your character to us. You've shown us that you are compassionate, that you are merciful, but you are also just, and you will judge with perfect judgment. And we rest in that. And I think for a good application for us as we talk about this subject is to go from this place and, and treat people as you treat them. Love them the way you love them. Love them the way we love ourselves. And that might just do something to, to reduce this climbing suicide rate, that we would treat people as image bearers. They're not enemies. They're not people that we want to rail against, speak evil of. We, I want to love people, and, and I pray that we would do that. We, we should do that in this hate-filled world. The Christians should just be overflowing with love and kindness to all people. And I, I pray that you'll work that in us. Will you help us do that, please? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we prepare to close.